It's May 30th, and this is your DSR Daily Brief. I'm Grant Haver. And I'm Chris Cotnor. Because of the holiday, we're breaking format. Instead of bringing you the latest national security and foreign policy news in under 10 minutes, we'll be doing an interview similar to those we have in the weekend bonus briefs. For that interview, we're joined by Kevin Kleiman, a research analyst at the Harvard Belfer Center and author of the recent op-ed in The American Prospect, Biden's successor to TPP is a boon for big tech. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. What is the successor to TPP and why is it so good for American tech companies? The successor to TPP is called the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, which Biden announced in Tokyo earlier in the week. And the reason why it's good for big tech is that big tech is one of the main players at the negotiating table. So big tech has a hand in a couple of the different pillars of the agreement. The pillars of the agreement as they're set out are on the digital economy, on strengthening supply chains, on green technology and avoiding the climate crisis, and having the economy be more fair and less corrupt. And at least on the first three, tech companies are some of the biggest stakeholders, and they have the ear of the Biden administration and the negotiators in Asia Pacific as well, because they have the money to throw around in the region. In terms of the pillars, the fourth one you mentioned was more fair and less corrupt. In your piece, you mentioned the value of data localization, but is there also a concern that data localization allows bad actors to limit speech or invade privacy? There absolutely is. So there are instances across the world, namely in China, where countries have localized data sets and used their unilateral control of those data sets to censor political opponents, for instance. The trouble with this binary of either data localization in China's style or cross-border data flows in the U.S.'s style is that the U.S. alternative isn't so privacy protecting. The fact is that, as I cite in the piece, 70% of the data centers that are operated by Google and Facebook are in the US and only 7% are in Asia. So if you don't have localized data sets, the alternative is not that data is wholly protected. The alternative is that data is hosted in the United States, which does not have a federal data privacy law and where the US government has one of the most powerful surveillance apparatuses in the world, probably second only to China. How concerned are you about the privacy piece, considering that it seems like the Biden administration wants to make moves in this area, and Amy Klobuchar has written this bill that maybe will do something on big tech. So if America is out here making the rules, finally, for big tech, why should we be worried that we make the rules on the international stage? The Klobuchar bill is... Far from perfect. I am a supporter of it, but I would say that it is nothing close to even California's privacy law. The American Innovation and Choice Online Act makes clear that companies cannot preference their own products on their own platform. So Amazon can't, when I search watering can, have the first 100 results be Amazon branded watering cans, which is great. But that doesn't mean that Amazon can't sell the fact that I'm searching for watering cans to Home Depot and Home Depot can't sell it to my city government to know if I'm watering my neighbor's lawn or not. 
So it's just a, a different issue from privacy. And it's a good thing that we're writing some rules for our tech companies, but even that approach that's been put forward by Klobuchar is much more of a self-regulation approach, which has been what we've had since the dot-com bubble and what's led to some of the scandals we've seen with the 2016 election and Cambridge Analytica. One of the things that you brought up is it's either the China style or the US style. And a lot of advocates for American big tech say, it is that stark. It is either go with China or you let the U.S. do what the U.S. is doing. So how much of this new trade framework is more about putting China off than actually making solid rules for the road? In theory, that would be one of the prime motivating factors. So as we heard in Blinken's speech just on Thursday about the Biden administration's agenda with China, technology is one of the leading factors, and the U.S. wants to put its vision of technology on the international stage above China's vision in its interaction with every company domestically and internationally. But the choice is not that stark. There is this continent called Europe that has an alternative approach that's very different. There is a subcontinent called India that has a very different approach. The world is not just divided into the two most powerful countries militarily. And I'm just saying that it's not as simple as we have to support Facebook, Google, Amazon, Microsoft in whatever we do, because if we don't, then we might as well join the Chinese Communist Party and have a tea party with Xi Jinping. Kevin, in your piece, you bring up Secretary Raimondo and her role in these negotiations. You also indicate that she's particularly tech-friendly. What's her track record and what sort of led you to write and call her out specifically? So I cite Axios and a couple other sources as saying that she's big tech's most favored Biden ally. And Business Insider did a good investigation on this recently as well. And her track record here is that the EU is considering two very important pieces of legislation. One, the Digital Services Act that would regulate online services, and two, the Digital Markets Act that will regulate anti-competitive behavior in digital markets. And the National Security Council released a letter last year saying these policies are bad for U.S. grand strategy. We think that U.S. technology companies should be partners in Europe. I think that's a reasonable approach. Then Secretary Raimondo came forward at the end of last year and was doing lobbying on behalf of large technology companies. And the EU's internal markets commissioner, Thierry Breton, he came forward and said he was astonished that she's doing this lobbying on behalf of big tech. And I think his line was, I get calls from CEOs in the US every day. I don't need the commerce secretary knocking at my door too. So just to say that the Commerce Secretary's job is, in fact, to promote U.S. commerce, but there are a couple different visions that you might have in what promotes commerce. One might be that Jeff Bezos should be an unelected president of several European countries, as he is in this country. Another approach might be to say that it's okay that Germany has a company like SAP and the UK has its own technology companies, and those technology companies should be able to outcompete U.S. companies if they have better products. 
What would your vision be for both Gina Raimondo's role, but also what you ultimately would want in a framework like this? At minimum, a framework like this should have the intention to accomplish its goals. So right now, the goals are very lofty, and there is no chance of achieving them. Take the approach on 5G. Huawei sells 5G products that are half the price of their competitors. There's been a lot of talk in the United States that Huawei has collapsed, but it still is the leader in the international telecommunications equipment market by a long shot, almost as much as Nokia and Ericsson combined, its second competitors. The U.S. says that it has this new approach of open RAN or radio access networks that will be able to outcompete China. They haven't been deployed in a single country and they are not cost competitive. So that's just not going to happen. And in the competitiveness bill that Congress is considering, they're allocating $1.5 billion to 5G, whereas China and its network manufacturers are spending $150 billion. So if we are going to try and compete with China, we have to be honest about the fact with where we're going to succeed or where we're going to fail. One area that this trade deal could do better on is to say, we are going to embrace some of these semiconductor alliances that the United States has set up. So there are a couple industry alliances between Samsung, Intel, and TSMC, for instance, to try and set up better packaging technologies for semiconductors. In terms of Raimondo's role, I would say that it is Raimondo's job to make sure that Apple doesn't go bankrupt. That's great. Raimondo should be pressuring Apple to diversify and spend some of its windfall profits on manufacturing in India, Malaysia, other countries in Asia, because as the Wall Street Journal recently reported, 90% of Apple's products are produced in China. And that is a big lever that China has. If we want to continue this economic war with China, China can press the button and send both of our economies into a tailspin. What are the key points people that are not necessarily paying attention to this should be aware? One of the key points is that the U.S. is very aggressively moving around the world to undercut non-tariff barriers to digital trade. And there are two schools of thought here. One is that non-tariff barriers to digital trade prop up digital authoritarianism. So countries that have digital service taxes are likely using those to make sure that only their preferred platforms are able to thrive at home. Or countries that localize their data are doing so so that the government can have control over those data sets and censor people. And similarly with privacy and data protection legislation, those are seen as giving more control to the government. I have a different view. I think that non-tariff barriers within reason should be allowed and should not constitute an economic war crime, which seems to be the approach of the Biden administration, where with the new global minimum tax that the Biden administration adopted, 140 countries have signed on. The remaining countries often haven't signed on because there's a glaring loophole in the minimum tax deal, which says that digital services taxes are prohibited now and forevermore. So countries that think that they would make more money by taxing Apple or Microsoft or Twitter or Google are being left out and are likely to face tariffs from the United States as a result, which has raised concerns that half of Africa will receive a tariff designation 
from the Department of Commerce. This is just one example where we need to find a diplomatic solution to these options that are not economic warfare. Sanctions are very easy to implement, that we have an established process. We've ramped up sanctions on Iran, North Korea, China, and Russia. They're very hard to roll back. And if we start applying that framework to countries that could, in theory, be our allies in the future, that's going to make it harder for the U.S. to lead in different regions in the world. How important is it that this is not a trade deal, but a framework? And do you think this is even going to happen, just given the political winds in all these different countries and the timing of elections and all that good stuff? It's difficult to know if it's going to happen. We've got, we've got three years to see. But the Biden administration certainly has made it a priority within their broader China policy. The difference between it being a trade deal and an agreement is twofold. One is a trade deal has to go through Congress, and a trade deal can involve tariff reductions. That's what every country in the world wants, is they want the U.S. to reduce some of their tariffs on the country so that their companies can be more competitive in the U.S. market, or there will be market access provisions, as people call it. Second, the idea of it being an agreement means that countries can join only particular parts of the agreement. So as I laid out earlier, there are four different pillars. There might be countries that will only join one or two of the pillars. Indonesia has data localization provisions that it likes quite a lot, maybe it won't join the digital trade pillar and it will instead join the anti-corruption pillar. And Vietnam is similar. Maybe they won't join on digital trade, but they'll join on green energy. So that increases the likelihood that there will be some sort of cobbled together agreement at the end, but it won't be cohesive because even if you get 12, 13, 15 countries, they won't be agreeing to the same document. They'll be agreeing to half or three quarters of the same document. That's all the news we have for you today. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find the show. If you have a tip, topic, or correction you'd like to flag for us, please email us at daily at the dsrnetwork.com. Members of the DSR Network will receive an evening newsletter version of the DSR Daily Brief and bonus weekend briefs. Last weekend, we talked with Jenny Town, a senior fellow at the Stimson Center, about North Korea's recent missile tests and their COVID-19 outbreak. Thanks to our new members like Paige from London and our longtime members like Laura from Brooklyn for making these interviews possible. Go to the DSRnetwork.com and become a member to make sure you never miss any of our analysis. If you want more in-depth discussion of these issues, tune into our sister podcasts on the DSR Network. Stay safe and stay tuned to the DSR Daily Brief. <laughs>